0: It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Our guest today is an amazingly gifted, talented, and accomplished individual with a resume that includes acclaimed jazz vocalist to now being the president and CEO of of one of America's prominent jazz organizations, the DC Jazz Festival. Her name is Sonny Sumter. Sonny, thank you for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure to join you.
0: So, just for a little bit of fun, let me begin by saying many things, as you may know, are collected on a written piece of paper napkin. And in your case, would it be safe to say that your destiny began on a paper napkin? <laughs>
1: That's interesting. I think the destiny of the the jazz festival absolutely did start on a paper napkin. My wonderful dear friend, Charles Fishman, uh, former manager of Dizzy Gillespie, and his beautiful wife, Stephanie, in a club decided, or in a restaurant, thought of the then Duke Ellington Jazz Festival. And so, yes, it did start on a paper napkin. And
0: I saw you talking about that in a presentation that you did that's on uh, YouTube right now. It was uh, a uh, speaking engagement that you had, and it was very interesting to uh, hear how the organization actually developed and uh, ended up... Uh, under your tutelage now, uh, as the president and CEO, which is a, a recent promotion for you, you were executive director, but uh, I think it was at the beginning of June, uh, you were named the president and CEO?
1: That's right. And, and the role has been elevated. Uh, I'm excited, nervous, um, because it really involves expansion of the DC Jazz Festival organization and its annual festival, as well as its embassy series and its education programs, uh, really looking at the next chapter of, of Jazz Fest here in DC. And so, you know, really, I started working with Charlie working in education, really helping him grow the education aspects and the partnerships after working at the Aspen Institute, doing something similar there. I never thought in a million years, because at the time I was still singing. Uh, So never uh, really envisioned myself as being the leader of this organization. Um, But I have to say that it's been the joy of my life, aside from my two beautiful children. I have to give it up for Layla and Kobe. Because it, it's so, D.C. has been longing for a jazz festival in this great city. A lot of amazing presenters have tried to uh, have a sustaining jazz festival. And we're going on year 17, which is unprecedented for this town. And I really think that um, as, as much as we are looking at jazz in museums and jazz in uh, schools, really jazz is such a thriving art form. Uh, to be able to be in, in D.C. and present jazz and some of the most incredible uh, future of jazz artists, um, we really do. I think we do that well with the D.C. Jazz Festival. So it's exciting to be able to uh, have the promotion and be able to see the future of jazz uh, and help um, artists really make great strides with this amazing music. Well, when you
0: started out as a college student, you, you studied at Howard University, I believe. And your degree was in uh, music business. With I, I guess the minor was jazz vocal?
1: Jazz studies. Jazz mm-hmm. studies.
0: At the time, were you thinking that uh, maybe your future would uh, lie on the business side of the business, so to speak?
1: <laughs> no. No. Um, I wanted to be practical in my studies, and my father had said, wanted me to major in accounting at first. So I majored in accounting, but spent a lot of time in fine arts. Uh, and so decided to change. I realized it was a major, a music business major. So I thought, wow, I could minor in music and major in business. So I did just that. Um, and, and Howard has a really a fantastic uh, music business program that prepares you to work in any aspect of business um, management. Um, and so and, and I have friends that have gone on to to leave the music industry and have gone on to other aspects of other industries and have done quite well. And I think really that business aspect of learning and coupled with learning so much about jazz studies, you know, I studied with Grady Tate and Jerry Allen. Oh um, and, you know, minored in voice as well. So it was, I, I feel so honored and privileged to be able to now be on this side of it after, you know, performing as a performing artist for many years and glad that I did do both. I didn't, I didn't think I would be on this side of it at this point in my life.
0: So that, that wasn't the objective at first, uh, that you saw yourself in a business mode to, would move you down that path. You became a performer. You, you actually uh, performed all over the world, uh, and you've performed and recorded with some of the, the best in the world. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that was an exciting life, but then life got in the way for you as you got married and had children. So that changed your direction, maybe?
1: It did, especially back then uh, in the '90s, early 2000s. You were on the road a lot, and I think as a, I just gotten married, just had a, a, a newborn. I really wanted to be present with my daughter, and so I knew I couldn't do that as a touring artist. So I made the conscious choice to get off the road. And you know, there is, you can actually make a pretty decent living as a musician here in DC. Um, which I did I still continue to perform but you know you certainly don't make the the kind of income that you would as a traveling artist so I did make that decision to do it and at the time you know I did my own books my income statements I, you know I knew so much about my own marketing I, I knew so much about the business side of the music that I could do it myself and also help my friends help others so um I, I did not believe that this that I would actually end I thought maybe I'd be working for the Smithsonian because I love I love the campus of the Smithsonian so I thought I'd end up there somewhere so this is really as I said a little while you know a little bit ago this is quite a journey and I feel I pinch myself I'm pinching myself after the June announcement that you know my board would have so much faith in me to elevate me in this way and and I look forward to the expansion of the of the festival
0: does that Change the picture for you in any way? Are, are you nervous about this, uh, or maybe feeling like, hmm, this is really a big job?
1: It's. I am nervous. It is a big job. <laughs> so yes, and yes, but I'm excited. Um, I think we all need to have something that's thrilling. You know, life is really about. Life is so very precious, and I, I've learned that even more so after losing my mom to COVID last year, and so many friends and their parents, and having gone through a a bout with it myself, um, I want to just be inspired, and I think that having this um, lift up, as I said to my chairman, uh, Conrad Kinley, it feels like they've given me this runway, and I can get in my plane as a pilot and take off, and I feel it's exhilarating. It's giving me a lot of energy to to really help to, to expand this great music. Uh, I look at some of my um, my comrades, you know, Christian McBride, uh, the work that Janice Burley-Wilson's doing in, in Pittsburgh, Tim Jackson, what he's doing in Monterey. And it's just an exciting time, I think, for, the, for jazz because there's so many iterations of it and there's so many ways that you can take jazz in many directions. And this younger audience, this younger generation is certainly doing that. And I think the future is bright for jazz and I'm looking forward to being a part of, of that bright future. Well, and of course,
0: Listeners need to understand that this is more than just a jazz festival that happens once a year. This is a a full on organization that's devoted not only to music programs, but also educational programs.
1: It is. And because we really believe that if you start them early, so we actually have a a very early toddlers program called DC Jazz Bop. So we go into the schools and we teach the youngest of our learners about uh, math and reading it by reading uh, jazz inspired books about Louis, Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald and Dizzy Gillespie. And it's so interesting because we've been doing that program for about 12 years. And I had a 16 year old come up to me on the at our last festival that we did outside and said, I want to let you know that I've been listening to this music since your first program, DC Jazz Bops, at the Ark. And I couldn't believe it. He said. <laughs> and so it was my it was his testimony that what we were doing is right. So we do a for all the way from our earliest learners, toddlers, all the way through ad, to, to adult learners. Uh, we have a partnership with DC Public Schools. We go into the schools along with other content great content providers here in DC to make sure that our young people in middle school and high school have an interest in jazz, have an understanding of it, because you don't hear it on the radio. Uh, you have to seek it. And so uh, it's it's really a good um, opportunity for us not only to give artists, jazz artists, uh, an employment opportunity by going in and teaching as teaching artists in the schools, but it's also an opportunity to build tomorrow's jazz fans.
0: And of course, you know, from the beginning, you, you have sort of a, a built-in familiarity with the organization because you've been with them since 2008. So it's not as though you were... Recruited from some other agency or some other uh, part of the country and brought in fresh to become the president and CEO?
1: Look, I know some president and CEOs that have gone in and done tremendous things at at institutions, at art institutions, Mm -hmm. cultural institutions, companies. So this is, um, you know, that certainly can be done. But there is something to be said about learning an institution from the ground up and I think that you know even before joining the festival I was a performer. I performed at the festival twice and and just listening and, and you know working alongside Charlie for so many years, you know he went to so many festivals working with Dizzy and couldn't believe there wasn't a jazz festival here. And so to take this festival from really the ground one concert, into a citywide 150 concert offering over 10 days. Yes, I've seen that grow grow tremendously. And also, the power of stakeholders in a city that cares about art, um, and and to really reach out to them to a point that now we're holding hands with the the largest stakeholders in this town over years. You know, Destination DC, the Tourism Board here, Events DC, the Sports Entertainment. Arm of D.C., The Washington Post, who's our official media sponsor, and so many others, they have a vested interest in this festival as well. And when I talk to other festival institutions around the world, that's a winning formula. Uh, And so, yes, um, I've been working on partnerships for Jazz Fest since I joined in 2008. And it's really good to see those organizations still uh, aligning themselves with us, even through a pandemic.
0: Let me, let me ask you, you know, a lot of times when I talk to uh, some of the guests on the program, I ask about their influences when it comes to jazz. And I, I know yours was Sarah Vaughan because early, uh, early on uh, you fell in love with her singing and her music. And then you moved uh, in a direction that made you a jazz vocalist yourself. But uh, was there an influence somewhere in your life uh, that made you or gave you the opportunity to develop a business acumen?
1: That's a great question. You know, and I'm, I'm so glad that you uh, made mention of the great Sarah Vaughan. We, we should remember her forever as one of the, the most significant contributors to, to jazz. And, and I certainly am so delighted that my grandmother played her in the house when I was nine so I could fall in love with her. And she is absolutely the reason why I study jazz vocals, Sarah Vaughn. On the the business side of it, I would have to say that I, I probably learned the most when I worked at the Aspen Institute with Charlie Firestone, who ran the Communications and Society program, and Walter Isaacson. I served under both of them while I was there, and I learned so much about business, business management, financial management, partnerships, Community investment, all the things that um, dialogue, how to you know how to um, have um, significant conversations with people that you may not agree with, and how to come to some common ground is is a, a one of the missions behind the Aspen Institute, and certainly I think is what jazz really represents. And so um, I d- I learned so much from them, and I I thought I was going to go off in that direction, do more business with the Aspen Institute, before I got pulled back into jazz. And I'm just delighted that I spent those six years there because I did learn quite a bit about business.
0: Let's go back to the uh, paper napkin that we discussed earlier uh, and Charles Fishman. How did he find you or how did you find him?
1: Uh, Charlie is such a very special icon. You know, advocate here in DC, uh, and so everyone knows. Everybody knew Charlie, and uh, when I was still in college at Howard, I met Charlie and a few of his interns. And Charlie actually did um, helped me in, in some of my uh, work that I did in other parts of the world. He actually got me gigs. He, you know, so he's he. We became very close. He became a mentor. He knew my, you know, he knows my family well. I know his family and I learned so much. i never thought that I would work with him or work for him because at the time I was a, I was working for Aspen and I was a a, a, a singer and you know, was really married with, with at that point, two children. So, um, you know, I've known Charlie since I was 20. I've known him a long time. Mm-hmm. And in fact, his, my son and his son are best friends.
0: That's fantastic. And so he knew that uh, you might be someone that could run an organization.
1: Charlie brought me in to do education and partnerships. He knew that I was quite good at bringing partners together that in, and building um, an institution. So when he and I first um, talked about me joining, I joined as a consultant. I was still at Aspen to really help him figure out that piece of, of the organization. Um, and it was there, from there, that I became managing director, and you know, from there to executive director. So yes, it was really he knew that I had a good business sense, and that so that's the reason why I came on board, and it was delightful working with him.
0: And of course, it doesn't hurt either that uh, you were also a performer at one point, because one of the most uh, I think the most important qualities for any leader. Uh, or someone who is the head of an organization is someone that is personable, uh, interacts well with people, and is a champion of community. And you seem to have all of these qualities uh, rolled into one.
1: Oh my goodness. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I do believe that there has to be a huge element of community and a, and a real strong sense of purpose to, to build and sustain community when you are growing an arts institution in any city. And I, you know, we are very fortunate in that we have citywide partners that we've been working with, you know, for over 12, 13, 14 years. Uh, and I think it is because of that great sense of community. And even though the city might be changing, we, you know, we still have those strong partnerships that we are that we continue to develop and sustain. So yes, uh, I'm a firm believer in that. And then, you know, really being able to sit down with partners in d c that have a shared interest, you know jazz is um, an art form that you know when I look at the Kennedy Center and the Smithsonian and the Phillips Collection um and Washington Performing Arts. So many of those those organizations, jazz is a strong component. And so to be able to reach out to them and say, hey, our central mission is jazz. And we recognize that you really care about the art form. How can we work together? How can we band together? And it's been extraordinary. I mean, we, did, we did a concert last year, two years ago, where we honored Quincy Jones. Nancy Wilson had just died. Rory Hargrove had just died. Hmm. And we paid tribute to them and Shirley Horn. Um, had died years before, but we had never really adequately or appropriately honored her. So we did this extraordinary concert in the concert hall, at the Kennedy Center, sold out, and we did that in in collaboration with the Kennedy Center. It was absolutely amazing. We could not have pulled that off without their, um, you know, without their partnership. And I think that having, having that kind of understanding, and it makes us unique, Alan. It makes us unique because we're in a town where there are so many great art uh, art create- creators here, so many great art presenters, you know, we have some of the most amazing museums in the world are here in D.C. Uh, so we do feel fortunate that, that they're all a stone throw away. We can call them up and say, hey, what do you want to do in three years? And you can dream and start to raise money for those projects.
0: Well, and you are an arts and cultural center of the world, uh, being in Washington, and, and I'm sure some of that lends itself to being under pressure, if you will, because you're constantly in the spotlight. But at the same time, I, I'm sure it helps being there in the center uh, at uh, an opportunity or with an opportunity to build from there and connect not only with your community, but with a global community as well.
1: That's a really, really wonderful assessment there around, uh, around global Community, um, especially you know, takes me back to 2020 when we had we had to rethink really quickly about how we program. We had never even thought about streaming ever, even when streaming was pretty popular, even prior to the to the pandemic. We we never did it as an institution. We just, we really believed in the power of in person um, art, and so we just never streamed anything. So when we started to really had to we had no choice uh we reached out to the global community we were astonished at the number of households from around the world that tuned into our programs and at that point there were so many programs happening around the globe everybody had pivoted to virtual and we had over two hundred thousand people attend jazz fest from places we never thought we were even there you know, Panama and Portugal and Japan were partners with with the embassies of Japan and Italy. So we were expecting that um, in Switzerland, but in some of these other places where people were tuned in, it was absolutely uh, extraordinary for us. And we were number three in Polestar for any art form, for any music, um, the international Polestar, but we were number three that week. And uh, it really makes you realize what a uh, jazz has such a expanded global community and so even now as we think about this hybrid of in-person and virtual we recognize and we get it from the the, the exchange on on social media that the global community is right there wanting you know wanting to hear more wanting to participate uh wanting, wanting to experience jazz so uh, we're tapping into that in a, in a big way uh and it's really for the artist. I mean, it's, the artists then go on to, to go to those countries and sing and, you know, and play their instrument. And it's really special. I don't know if you're familiar with this amazing D.C. vocalist named Sharon Clark. Sharon sounds, you know, she has her feet uh, drenched in Sarah Vaughan and Ella Fitzgerald. She's in Sweden right now performing. And uh, they she's so beloved there in, in some of the other Nordic countries as well. Because I do think that this global community that you speak of is 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 really quite critical and important, especially now uh, now more than ever.
0: you know, and I think in in one aspect, the pandemic really is a, a benefit to a lot of us that pushed us out to, to a wider audience or, or community. Uh, I mean, even this podcast, I, I don't mean to start blowing my own horn or patting myself uh, on the back. But I, I'm amazed uh, in looking at the data as to where people are listening to this broadcast uh, and this podcast. And it's like, wow, I had no idea. We're, we're heard in 23 countries. But I think it, it's not only because people had time on their hands, but the drawing card, of course, was jazz. And that's really what's key for all of us.
1: That is so true. The drawn ca- card is jazz. And we were just at the Embassy of Sweden last week preparing for our opening ceremony where we'll be featuring Joshua Redman uh, along with a Swedish uh, singer by the name of Tippens, uh, Sarah Tippin, she's with the same record company, Snarky Puppy. Uh, she's, she will be opening for that. And the, the Swedes, are they have a tremendous community for, uh, and audience for jazz. Um, and then, right after I left there, I got an email from um, the Embassy of Finland uh, saying, "When are you going to do something here?" And then we've got, um, a few days later, we were at the Embassy of France going doing a walkthrough at the residence, where a replica of the Statue of Liberty actually will be placed in front of that residence in, uh, in here in DC. Hmm. And we're, we're doing something there in October. So you know, this sense of of, of jazz being a drawing card, you know, Charlie used to say that Dizzy and Dave Brubeck were responsible for that, and there was also a program, Voice of America program, that was probably—and um, I'm forgetting the uh, Will Con- Will Conover really responsible for for jazz for the for, you know being planted in the in the um, global community back then, and you know. I... Uh, I cannot t- just extraordinary artists that come out of the country, bringing their own folk music and infusing it into the spirit of jazz. It's, it's wonderful.
0: Well, now that we're past 2020, uh, we're moving on. Uh, as you've already alluded to, uh, you did it very well last year with your festival, and it uh, just was significant and and well received all across the globe, as we mentioned. And now here you are, the 17th annual DC Jazz Fest, which is coming up in September, and it's live. That's got to be a great feeling.
1: It's a great feeling. It is. I I really believe that jazz is most appreciated in, in a live setting. And so to be able to bring over 20 artists to uh, DC Jazz Fest at the Wharf, all different uh, aspects of the jazz umbrella will be featured as well and to celebrate this great music but also celebrate um the resiliency of of us as, as as people and to be able to come together and celebrate it will be free there you know we have some uh other opportunities but it's a free event and we expect um that there'll be a, a really big crowd that'll come out to see this gra- great jazz talent
0: I, I'm amazed by that fact. Uh, at, at first, I thought, well, maybe I didn't read this correctly, uh, that you're saying it's free. Uh, wow. I, it, and you, when you look at the lineup of, of people that you have uh, on stage planned for this event, uh, September 1st through the 5th, it, it's it's pretty stunning.
1: It is stunning. And, you know, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier about state holders and partnerships. We are able to offer this free weekend because we have great partnerships. You know, I I cannot believe that, you know, and I think the artists are excited about it too. Uh, It's we do have some ticketed, you know, opportunities, but it is free and open to everyone. And so we want people to come early and and not only experience the music, but have an experience of the waterfront uh, because it's a waterfront destination. To go to the restaurants, uh, to go to to many of the offerings that are down at the wharf, which has become, you know, the premier uh, neighborhood here in DC. I'm excited. I cannot wait to see. I mean, Maria Schneider Orchestra. I've never seen outdoors. <laughs> hmm. Never seen her outdoors. So. That's gonna be extraordinary. Um, Well, how about if we
0: uh, take a little uh, name dropping walk through your lineup, Uh, besides Maria Schneider, who we've had on this podcast as well, uh, uh, who is absolutely an amazing artist. Uh, You've got Regina Carter. Go ahead and uh, give us some other names.
1: So Regina Carter, by the way, is doing a, a, a night of strings with the String Queens, which is an amazing trio of string players out of DC. Uh, we also have we. There's some people we can't mention and until they're announced publicly.
0: Come on, let me. Can I twist your arm? Hey, can I uh, send you a check in the mail? <laughs> you can. <laughs> you can let us know. I, I promise I won't tell anyone. I know you've got a big festival lined up. It's going to be outdoors. It's going to be free. It's going to be live music, which is what and how jazz needs to be heard and appreciated and enjoyed. Who are some of the people that are going to be a part of this uh, festival this year for the 17th annual?
1: Um, The Spanish uh, Harlem Orchestra is going to bring, you know, a dance party, a Latin party. So we're looking forward to dancing with them. Oren Evans is bringing his Brazil project. Um, Lakeisha Benjamin is is performing. Um, We have Emmanuel Wilkins, who won the Rising Star Award Mm -hmm. this year. He's bringing his quartet, which is pretty fantastic. We're doing a Billy Taylor centennial celebration. I saw um, that. Dr. Taylor was born on July 24th, 100 years ago, and we are honoring him. He's a Washingtonian born and raised here. Uh, he had a great program at the Kennedy Center. And so we're honoring him featuring um, Cyrus Chestnut, great Alan Johnson, who runs the jazz program here at the University of the District of Columbia, It will also feature um, Winard Harper and Chip Jackson that were in, you know, part of um, Dr. Taylor's trio. And then Afro Blue, the acclaimed a cappella group out of um, Howard University here in D.C. And then we're doing a tribute to the legendary saxophonist Andrew White, who passed away last year. We are looking forward to presenting his works. I mean, he... Uh, transcribed all of the John Coltrane solos is probably his biggest claim to fame Um, but he's quite well known as a multi-instrumentalist and um, that show will feature Kevin Toney, Steve Novosel who a great bassist, um, also drummer Keith Kilgo, Antonio Parker and a couple of special guests uh, that we will be sharing with you very very soon. Um, In addition we have Car Keys, which is one of the best local talent uh, that's coming out of D.C. We're also going to be featuring, I can tell you, uh, John Schofield.
0: (laughs) Wow. Fantastic. Uh,
1: Yes. So um, I will give you one (laughs) special guest that we're really excited about that we will be making. You're going to hear it first on this program. So just an incredible lineup that folks can come in here for free.
0: Well, thank you for that exclusive as well. And uh, I'm sure everybody's excited about this lineup. Another part of special presentation that you're doing uh, in conjunction with the uh, Jazz Festival is the the seventh annual DC Jazz Pre-Finals. What is that?
1: That is our international band competition finals. Uh, Every year we have um, over 100 that submit uh, applications to, to be a semi-finalist for the band competition. The criteria is that you have to be a working band. It really is focused around the band aesthetic. Uh, and so we are looking for bands that have where the, the core expression is the camaraderie of the band rather than over the individual. And so we have the finals that are coming up. It's featuring Gift and Gillen Quintet. And if anybody has heard this amazing trumpeter, young trumpeter, he's fantastic. Camilla George out of the UK and Damir um, Ramirez and Habana Entrance out of Cuba. And it's going to be extraordinary. Uh, It's an international competition. We've got three of the very finest um, of our young artists, you know, band uh, ensembles that will be performing. uh, And that will happen on Sunday, September the 5th over Labor Day weekend.
0: Well, it sounds absolutely amazing. And it's pretty much what this conversation has been with you. It's amazing. And I'm glad we've had an opportunity, Sonny, to, uh, to meet up and to talk, uh, and with you at the helm of the, uh, Washington DC jazz festival organization, uh, it's, it's destined for continued success and an upward movement.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Alan. It's been a pleasure to be on your show. And, you know, I wouldn't be remiss if I didn't really send special thanks to my artistic director, Rula Jenkins, who does an extraordinary job programming the festival and also my my great team uh, that works not only on the education side, but the marketing side and uh, the programming side that really lift us all up throughout the year. I mean, we really are a fantastic team uh, that makes all this music and all these great programs happen.
0: One final thing, how can people learn more about you and your organization?
1: You can go to dcjazzfest.org, dcjazzfest.org. Join the mailing list when you get there. Um, look around on the various pages to learn more about what we do.
0: And I know you're on Instagram and Facebook, oh, just yes, about all the social media.
1: That's right, Twitter.
0: No excuse, learn about them, experience it, and enjoy being a part of uh, all that you have to offer in the nation's capital with the DC Jazz Festival organization under the helm of Sonny Sumter. Thank you so much for being here with us on All That's Jazz.
1: Thank you, it's definitely my pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with Sonny Sumter.
1: We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song.
0: And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you like today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and
1: Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.